You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Gospel of John, chapter 4. We'll read together beginning at verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I believe that you are a prophet. Or I perceive, sorry, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come now to your word and it is our delight and confident expectation that you would meet with us in it. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us not only in creation, but also salvifically in your word. And it is here in the pages of this book that we come to know you personally and intimately. We begin to see and behold the God who is high and lofty and lifted up and transcendent above all things. We pray now, O Spirit of God, that you would be our teacher and that you would help us to exalt and honor Christ this morning in our listening and in our speaking and in our obedience to these words. We pray this in his name, in Christ's name. Amen. I've been preaching now here at this church for almost 14 years. I started when I was about 12, I think, somewhere around that neighborhood. And uh, one of the benefits of doing that over a long period of time is I'm able to look back and see all of the different things that as a church we have gone through, the subjects and the topics and the series, etc. And uh, not too long, I think about probably about a year or a year and a half into preaching, we went through a series in this church, and I think there was like five people here that are here today who maybe remember this. We went through a series on worship, and it was 12 weeks long, and we talked about the why to worship and how to worship and what is worship and what are the activities of worship and what makes worship worship and who is it that we worship. And we covered all of that. And we had a passage from Isaiah and a passage from Jeremiah and some stuff from the Psalms. And one of those sermons that I preached was from John 4, verse 24. And since that time, probably 12 years ago, we haven't really stopped and looked at the subject of worship in the detail that we did back then. Um, we have talked about and touched on different elements of worship as we've worked our way through different books. We talked about, for instance, fellowship and giving and exhortation and preaching and uh, singing and worship and the different things that contribute to our corporate worship service. As we've gone through different books of the Bible, we saw that in Acts a few years back and in Ephesians before that and First Timothy before that, and we've touched on these different subjects, but never have we since that time stopped and really paused to look at the subject, what is worship and what makes worship worship and who do we worship and why do we worship. And so I think it will benefit our congregation if we were to sort of slow down a little bit more slowly than we actually normally go as we work our way through John 4 verse 24. Now I know that there are people sitting here who wish I would go faster than I normally do and change subjects every once in a while as we work our way through a book. So for you, that group that is here, you can think of the next couple of weeks as sort of a mini-series within a series. 
It's a little mini-series on worship that we're going to sort of do in the middle of the Gospel of John. We're not actually going to leave the Gospel of John. We're going to do John 4.24. But we're going to take that verse and unfold it and sort of develop it over the course of the next two or three or ten weeks as we look at this subject of worship. And we connect the theology of our worship with the practice of our worship. And what I want to do this morning is I, I just want you to see the importance of understanding the God that we worship. And why it is that Jesus, before he even described to the woman at the well what worship was and what constitutes a true worshiper, he gave her that statement at the beginning of verse 24, God is spirit. Now in verse 23, Jesus had said, the true worshipers worship God in spirit and in truth. Now he repeats that in verse 24, but at the beginning of verse 24, he has that statement, God is spirit. And J.C. Ryle says that that declaration before us is one of the most lofty and definite sayings about God's nature, which is to be found anywhere in the whole Bible. And I would agree with that. Jesus gives a statement about the essence and the nature and the character of God, who God is and what God is, before he tells the woman how it is that she is to worship. Because before you and I can answer the question, what does it mean to worship in spirit, and what does it mean to worship in truth, And how do those two elements of our worship impact what we do here today? We first have to take a step back and go a step before that and say, who is this God that we are worshiping? What is His nature? Because the nature or our theology of God will drive what it is that we do in worship. In other words, all of the practices of our worship here corporately and individually when we are in our homes is grounded and based upon our theology and our nature of God and how we think about God. A high and lofty and exalted view of God will lead to reverential and high and lofty worship. And a low, irreverent, despicable view of God, a view of God that is not worthy of Him, will drive us to worship that is low, irreverent, and unworthy of God. So we want to make sure that we make that connection between how it is that we think about God and how it is that we worship God, and we ask ourselves, What is my mental image of God? How is it that I perceive God when I bow down to worship? When I pray, what is going through my mind? And how is it that I think in my heart and in my mind about God? That will drive our worship. So verse 24, in its context, really was driven, uh, the answer was driven by the woman's question, where do we worship, Gerizim or Jerusalem? Jesus said, there's coming a time when it's not going to be in Gerizim and it's not going to be in Jerusalem. You Samaritans have always worshipped in ignorance. You worship a God that you do not know, an unknown God to you. They were worshipping the right God as He was revealed in the first five books of the Old Testament, but they were not. They did not know that God. They did not understand that God because they did not know Him by revelation, because they didn't accept all the Old Testament writings, and they didn't know Him by covenant. But the Jews, on the other hand, did know God because salvation is of the Lord. And literally that just means that the Savior or the Messiah would come through the Jews. That's up in verses 22 and 23. Now we come to verse 24, and that statement, God is spirit. So those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. So today I want to introduce verse 24. And I want you to see that Jesus, for a very specific and a very good reason, begins to discuss with this woman, when talking about the subject of worship, not with, okay, here's how you worship, this is important, and here's where you worship, this is important, and here's all the outward things that you need to do, these are important. He backs up even further to that and goes back to the essential thing in our worship. How is it that you perceive of God? God is spirit. One of the most magnificent and profound statements on the nature of God, and it's immensely applicable to us. God is spirit. 
And since God is spirit, therefore, if you are going to be a true worshiper, you must worship him in spirit and in truth. So let's look today just at this connection between the God that we worship and our thinking of God as how we worship him and the practice of worship. One is orthodoxy, one is orthopraxy. Orthodoxy is right thinking, right belief, right doctrine. Orthopraxy is right practice. And if our doctrine or theology of God is off, so is going to be our orthopraxy or our practice of God, a practice of worship. It is the heart's cry of any heart that has been truly born again and truly renewed and warmed by grace. It is the cry of that heart to worship in spirit and in truth and to be a true worshiper. If you have been born again in the spirit and if you have been given a new spirit, then you long to worship God in the spirit. And if you love truth and if you're committed to truth and if truth is something that lights your fire and you are passionate, you want to make sure then that you worship God in truth. And you don't want to neglect spirit for the sake of truth and you don't want to neglect truth for the sake of being in the spirit. And so what we want to do is be able to worship God both in spirit and in truth. And the yearning of our heart is to worship and glorify God. Ironically, God has so structured our makeup and our being and His glory and this whole of creation and His calling us to worship Him, that when we pursue God and worship Him rightly, we are actually securing and pursuing our own good. And this is more difficult for me to explain than you might imagine. And every time I try and explain this connection between these two things, I always feel like I do an inadequate job. So here I'm going to try it again. When we worship God, since God is the most infinite, the most glorious, the most beautiful, the greatest being in all of the universe, then the highest crime that could possibly be committed in all of the universe would be to neglect the worship of that God and to worship another. Likewise, the greatest activity that any of His creatures could ever be involved in would be to rightly worship Him as He is. So since God is the greatest being... The greatest crime is to not worship Him or to neglect Him. And the greatest activity is to worship Him. That is the greatest thing that you and I can do. And in worshiping and glorifying God, it actually is for our own good, because when we do that, then we are blessed. We are blessed temporarily. temporarily, That is, we are blessed here in time. We are also blessed in eternity. I'm not talking about financial blessing. I'm just talking about the sanctifying effects of being spiritually blessed. The greatest thing that I can possibly do is to worship that greatest being. And when I do that, that accomplishes my good. Because I am created to do that. I am saved to do that. Redeemed to do that. The Father pursued me so that I would do that. And I want to and I long to do that. And so when I actually do that, that is for me the greatest thing I can be doing. And that results in the greatest blessings for me. Likewise, when I neglect to do that, I cut myself off from true worship and from the one true God. To glorify Him is to secure and advance my own good. And how does God glorify Himself? By being good to His creatures. And so by being good to me, He honors and glorifies Himself, and I glorify Him for His goodness to me, and He is good to me in order to glorify Himself. That's the connection. It's a wonderful connection that exists. Now, God is the most infinite and the greatest being, and the highest act that I could possibly be involved in is to worship Him in spirit and truth, truly as a true worshiper. But listen, is that not also the most difficult thing in the world? Am I the only one in this building that finds worship, true worship, difficult? It is hard. Partly because I am shackled to this body of flesh, this unredeemed body of flesh, that I long to be free from. And I bring into the presence of God every time I go there, me. 
And everything that I do, my worship, my singing, my preaching, my teaching, my scripture reading, my meditation, my prayer, my praise, my adoration, my service, all of that is polluted with me. And if I could just get rid of me, then I could offer to God pure worship. But I find that every time I go into His presence, I have to bring me along. And that's a problem. Have you ever been in the presence of God, meditating and thinking on Scripture and praying or reading Scripture, and had the most unholy, impure, unrighteous, horrible thought enter your mind? And you say to yourself, where did that come from? I hate that. Can't I get that out of there? And then we are... We are plagued with distractions around us constantly. Even in our individual worship, we are distracted. I can find myself praying for a missionary. And I pray for the missionary. I pray that God would encourage them in their work. And then I think to myself, but maybe I should be the instrument that God would use to encourage them in their work. I'll send them an email first thing when I get back to the office. By the way, my office door needs to be fixed because that key goes in, but it doesn't come out. And it's getting increasingly difficult to pull the key out. And I need to schedule a time to get down there. I need to go to the store, buy a new doorknob, get there and install it. But I can't do it this week because this week is way too busy. And I can't do it this weekend because this weekend is way too busy. And this weekend is the first weekend of football season. And speaking of which, I need to submit my fantasy picks before Thursday night's kickoff. Otherwise, I'm not going to be able to get the points for that. And now back to the missionary. And it takes me longer to describe to you that whole train of events than it takes to unfold in my mind. Because in my mind, it goes like that and I'm off into the far corners and the reaches of the universe. Do you have no problem praying? You find yourself distracted? The highest calling, the highest activity, the greatest good for us is true worship. And it is at the same time the most difficult thing in the world to do. We have to face that reality. We have to acknowledge that that is true of us. There will be a day when I will be able to serve and glorify and honor and pray and meditate and think about God without any of those things coming into my mind. But as long as I am in this flesh, worship, true worship, is the most difficult thing to do. And when we are alone in our private worship, we have all these distractions and the pressing concerns of life that come in upon us, and we wish that we could be rid of those things. And then we think, I, I just long. Private worship makes me long for corporate worship. Because then we come together here as a group of people and there are things that happen here that don't happen when I'm alone with God in my own private time. The the mutual fellowship and the worship and the camaraderie and all the things that happen here and the teaching and the preaching and the, the sharing back and forth and concerns and the prayer and all of the stuff, the joys of corporate worship, those are things that I can't even purchase in my own private time. But this gathering here is not free from its distractions, is it? Because you're, you got that kid who's pulling at your pant leg all the way through the singing, and somebody's trying to preach, and somebody's trying to read, and somebody's trying to sing, and when all of that is going on, you have all of these distractions happening around you. And if you don't have a child pulling at your pant leg, you're standing behind somebody who does have a kid pulling at their pant leg, and that distracts you, and you say, why can't that little kid worship like a 40-year-old adult? I mean, here we are in a worship service, and doesn't this kid know what's going on in the worship service? And then the beeping goes off over in the corner that distracts all of us for a full minute while somebody's trying to preach, which we cured that. We found the culprit over there and figured that out and destroyed that. (laughs) And you're thinking about the people that you need to talk to after the service and the people that you should have talked to before the service. And some of you are struggling with falling asleep, like many of you are right now. And you long to be done and out of here and you're thinking about dinner, what to eat, where to eat. I hope Jim doesn't go on too long because that between Jim and Nick, I'm going to burn what it is that I had planned to eat because it's sitting in the oven at home and on and on it goes. All of those distractions. Worship is truly the most difficult thing, either corporately or individually, that we do. But listen, it is the most important thing that we do, either individually or corporately. 
filled with its distractions. Now, not the least of our concerns when we are worshiping, either individually or corporately, is to make sure that the God that we are worshiping is the God as he is revealed in Scripture. That is the most important thing that you and I need to get right. We don't want to be guilty of falling into three errors. Three errors. Either worshiping the wrong God in the wrong way, that is to commit idolatry and to offer worship that is not worthy of the one true God, and it is to worship the wrong God, to worship the wrong God in the wrong way, or to worship the right God in the wrong way, which we might have our doctrine of God right, but we might be offering to him worship that he doesn't want, has not prescribed, and does not please him whatsoever. Or we might worship the right God. Is this right God in the wrong way? Okay, there are three of them. Wrong God in the wrong way. The right God in the wrong way. The wrong God in the right way. We might have a wrong perception of God and yet worship Him in all of the ways that the true God has prescribed to us. But the God that we envision in our mind, the God that we actually hold to in our hearts, is not the one true God. That's idolatry. We want to make sure that we don't fall into that ditch. We want to make sure that we get on the other side or actually in the proper and right camp. And that is to worship the right God in the right way. That means to rightly think about God and perceive Him and entertain correct and right notions and thoughts of God in our hearts and to worship Him the way that He has prescribed for us to worship Him. Do you think God is concerned with how He is worshipped? I think He is. I don't think God should be approached irreverently or flippantly or in any way that condescends or lowers Him to our view. I believe God is very, very concerned with how He is to be worshipped. Read Leviticus. Focus in on chapter 10 and ask Nadab and Abihu if God is concerned with how he is worshipped. He is concerned with how he is worshipped. And I do not believe that God is less concerned today than he was back in the Old Testament. I don't believe that with the full revelation and knowledge of God and his nature as the glorious, majestic, only, sovereign, triune God of the universe, that having given that revelation of him, that he all of a sudden says, you know, I really don't care how you worship me. Just do whatever you want. Just come into my presence, sing whatever song you want. You want to take a Beach Boys song and change the lyrics? Have at her. You want to read whatever it is that you want to read? Have at her. Just do preaching however you want to do it. Do whatever you want to do in my presence. Just call it a church service. I don't think so. I think God is intimately concerned with how He is to be worshipped. I love my wife. Because I love my wife, whenever my children disrespect her or dishonor her or don't speak appropriately to her, I correct them and then discipline them if necessary. Why? Because I want my wife to receive the honor that she is due. If I love God and if you love God, then we will be concerned with how he is to be worshipped. And we will want to make sure that we give to him the honor that he is due. Because he is due honor. And he is due glory. And we want to proclaim his worthiness and his, his worthship, which is what worship is. It is declaring the worthship of God. We want to make sure that we do that. So we want to make sure that we worship the one true God rightly. When I went to Bible college, my very first year at Bible college, we had a, a, a class called Doctrine Class, and the textbook for Doctrine Class was a little tiny book by A.W. Tozer called The Knowledge of the Holy. I had never read that book before. I'd never seen that book before. Before I went to Bible college, I didn't even know Christians wrote and published books, but here they were. Here was one, The Knowledge of the Holy. And I started reading it, and I have found, and I would commend this to you for your own reading, I have found over the course of the last 15 or almost 20 years now since I got that book, has been 20 years uh, since I got that book, that I have returned to it over and over and over again, and mine is falling apart. And that book was so rich, so good, that I actually, there are, there are chapters in there where the whole chapter is highlighted. Now, when you highlight a whole chapter, the highlighting doesn't mean anything, does it? It's not. You might as well not highlight anything. But I have whole chapters of that that are highlighted. And I want to quote to you, that the very first chapter in that book is, 
why we need to think about God rightly, or something to that effect. I didn't write down the tap chapter, but that's that's the essence of it. Why we must think of God rightly. And I want to quote to you some stuff from A.W. Tozer, because it would be an injustice to you if I were to try and make his words my own and try and communicate to you something that he says when he says it so much better than I do. And by the way, the book is just, it's real thin. It's not light reading. It's easy reading. In other words, there's no, there's no, no real difficult words in it. You don't have to figure out the sentence structure. It's an easy book to read, but it will blow your mind. It will stretch your mind because it talks about all of God's attributes of greatness, an attribute of greatness. God has two sort of classifications of attributes. Attributes of goodness, loving kindness, um, mercy, grace, love, long-suffering, those things, and attributes of greatness, his imminence, his transcendence, his infinitude, his uh, immutability, the fact that he doesn't change, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence. Those are attributes of his greatness. And Tozer just takes you through the attributes of God's greatness to see, give you an idea of how great God is. So here's what Tozer writes. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base, that is vile, pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. Now I ask you this question, do you think the church today has a high view of God or a low view of God? High view of God or low view of God? Low view of God. I've given you example after example of clown communion and church services for dogs and dog communion and people dressed up in the most ridiculous suits and 80s worship sermon series and uh, retro worship summer blockbuster worship series. Take a look at the preaching of the modern evangelical church and tell me honestly that the church has a high view for God. You can't do that with a straight face. It is a pathetically low view of God. The church today suffers from a lack of understanding the transcendence of God, His loftiness. Let me give you a quick history of the last 150 years of church history. Back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, there was a movement that swept through Europe. The downgrade part, uh, the downgrade controversy in Spurgeon's day was part of it, but it was this liberalization, this dumbing down of Christianity in Europe. Now, Europe is about 100 years or so, 150 years ahead of where we're at in the United States. Same thing's happening today. Happened in Europe. As a response to what was going on in Europe and some of those ideas coming across the Atlantic into the United States in the early 1900s, there was a movement started called the Fundamentalist Movement. And fundamentalism has a bad connotation and connection in today's world. I don't think so. I would call myself a fundamentalist. That is, I hold to the fundamentals of the faith. But fundamentalism kind of came to be attached to the idea of legalism and orthodoxy and staunch dryness in the relationship to God. That was sort of one of the unintended consequences of fundamentalism. So as the pendulum swung in that direction, you had a group of people who sort of had this dry, pharisaical type of orthodoxy. Not a lot, and it wasn't necessarily the logical result of fundamentalism. It was just the unintended consequences. So in response to liberalism, you had this swing toward fundamentalism. Fundamentalism in some sectors sort of went to seed and went bad. As a response to that, in the mid-1900s, toward the end of the 1900s, there was this sort of return back to the idea of a personal relationship with Jesus. You ever heard that terminology? Christianity isn't a religion, it is a relationship. You've all heard the phrase, right? You need to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Now that phrase in phaseology goes is good so far as it goes. It just doesn't go far enough. One of the problems with it is, look, everybody has a personal relationship with Jesus. Everybody in the world has a personal relationship with Jesus. 
They are either related to him personally as Savior or they are related to him personally as judge. But it is a very personal and it is very relationship. Everybody has a personal relationship with Jesus in one camp or the other. But the idea was to sort of bring God down to our level and make God our buddy, our cosmic friend. Jesus is your friend. He's your buddy. Have a personal relation. He just wants to be your chum. And so God in the heavens, who was high and lofty and lifted up and transcendent, majestic and holy, was brought down to our level, and now we have a personal relationship with him. Now, it's true I do have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as my Savior. But the problem is, the result of that is that the church is now suffering from a lack of a view of the transcendent, or the transcendence of God. We have lost the notion that God is holy, that he is high, that he is majestic, that he is infinite in all of his perfections. We have failed to recognize that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Tozer again says this, For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself, and the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given moment may say or do, but what he is in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of individual Christians, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. It doesn't matter what you say about God. The real question that you and I have to face is, what do I in my heart believe that God is like? We have in our churches in modern evangelicalism something I like to call file cabinet theology. We have an orthodox, transcendent, magnificent statement of God in our doctrinal statement. And it's in a filing cabinet somewhere. We're not sure exactly where it's at. We know it's there somewhere. And we think that the church secretary could probably dig it out if she were asked to find it. And we gave her a couple of weeks of overtime to do so. But that doctrinal statement, as orthodox and majestic as it portrays God to be, bears little to no resemblance to the God that we flippantly address and flippantly and irreverently worship on Sunday mornings. So our file cabinet theology is very orthodox, but the God that is addressed by his people on Sunday mornings is just a little tiny insy-beansy God who is really not worthy of our worship and our adoration and our praise at all. Again, Tozer. A right conception of God is basic not only to systematic theology, but to practical Christian living as well. It is to worship what the foundation of the temple is, what the foundation is to the temple. Where it is inadequate or out of plumb, the whole structure must sooner or later come tumbling down. I believe there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect and ignoble thoughts about God. Show me an error of Christian living, an error in Christian thinking, an error in Christian doctrine, or a wrong behavior by anybody, and you can always trace that back to an inadequate or low view of God. It also has gospel implications. How is it that we have, if we have a low view of God that we are honestly to, to get sinners to see their need for forgiveness? The sinner must feel the mighty burden of his sin and his iniquity before God. And so Tozer writes this, The mighty burden is his obligation to God, and it includes an instant and lifelong duty to love God with every power of mind and soul, to obey Him perfectly and to worship Him acceptably. And when the man's laboring conscience tells him that he has done none of these things, but has from childhood been guilty of foul revolt against the majesty in the heavens, the inner pressure of self-accusation becomes too heavy to bear. And the gospel can lift this destroying burden from the mind, give beauty for ashes and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, but unless the weight of the burden is felt, the gospel can mean nothing to the man. 
And until he sees the vision of God high and lifted up, there will be no woe. There will be no burden. Low views of God destroy the gospel for all who hold them. End quote. A low view of God destroys the gospel. And the church, in thinking that they are doing the sinner of favor by, lower, favor by lowering God down to their level and getting them to see God as just this buddy or this companion, has actually put a stumbling block in the way of people actually coming to true faith. Because they don't see God as being a fearful thing to fall into His hands. They don't see Him high and lifted up and say, Woe is me, I am a sinner, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. I'm undone. They never say that. Why? God's my buddy. I got nothing to fear. He's my friend. So they have this low view of God, and what have we done to the gospel? It destroys the power of the gospel. If you and I could understand this, all this evangelical silliness that surrounds us today would vanish in an instant if Christian church could just get back to this. The high and the loftiness and the transcendence and the majesty of a holy God. It is my opinion, says Tozer, that the Christian conception of God current in these middle years of the 20th century is so decadent as to be utterly beneath the dignity of the Most High God and actually to constitute for the professed believers something amounting to a moral calamity. End quote. Now, he said that in 1960. Has it gotten better or worse? What would he say today? A moral calamity? It's gone beyond a moral calamity. It is a travesty of the highest proportions. Because the church today has such a low, pathetically decadent view of God that we have lost the feeling of transcendence and loftiness that he has. And that's nothing short of idolatry. And Tozer writes this, my last quote from him, The idolatrous heart assumes that God is other than He is, in itself a monstrous sin, and it substitutes for the true one God made after its own likeness. Always this God will conform to the image of the one who created it and will be base or pure, cruel or kind, according to the moral state of the mind from which it emerges. A God begotten in the shadows of the fallen heart will quite naturally be no true likeness to the true God. Let us beware lest we in our pride accept the erroneous notion that idolatry consists only in kneeling before visible objects of adoration and that civilized people are therefore free from it. The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. And it has taken place in the mind and may be present when no overt act of worship has taken place. In other words, the essence of idolatry is simply thinking thoughts about God that are not true of Him that are not worthy of Him. And that act of idolatry, listen, it can take place, it takes place in the heart and the mind when no overt act of worship has ever taken place. And every person here today is either a true worshiper or an idolater. There are no third options. And so I ask you this question. Christian, church, what is your view of God? Is it high and lofty and majestic? Have you caught a glimpse of the one who is holy in the heavens and transcends all things, who is infinite in all of his perfections? Or do you just have you got as your buddy? Put my arm around him. We're all fine. It's all good. No need to worry about anything. Is your view of God high or low? A true, a true view of God will be to the believer very attractive and to the unbeliever very repulsive. A false view of God will be to the believer very repulsive and to the unbeliever very attractive. Now you may be a believer and you say, but I don't feel attracted to and I don't feel compelled to this God. 
The problem is probably that you have not caught a glimpse of him because there is nothing more beautiful and nothing more alluring and nothing more majestic and nothing more awe-inspiring than that true God. And when we catch a glimpse of him in his word and study his character and the majesty of that God and we get some idea in our minds of who it is that we worship, we are compelled and driven to that God. That is the response of a redeemed heart. If you're a Christian and you have a pathetically low view of God, then no wonder you don't feel drawn to Him. No believer would be drawn to that. No believer would feel a a mental or emotional or spiritual attachment to a God that is that pathetic. It's not worthy of anything in you to be drawn to Him. And so the only cure is to look into the Word and say, what is God like? Who is God? What has He done? How majestic is He? And to get some glimpse of that God. And when we have a high view of God, then our worship will also be high. When we have a low view of God, our worship will be base. We are surrounded by a low view of God. On Christian radio, on Christian TV, in Christian sermons, in churches that we have come out of or been part of in years past, we are surrounded not only in our culture, but unfortunately also in the church by a pathetically decadent low view of God. We need to lift that up and raise that up. And the only way we can do that is by getting a glimpse of our Savior as He has revealed Himself in Scripture, so that we might then respond by worshiping Him in spirit and in truth. Now, all of this has just served as an introduction to John 4, verse 24. Now that we understand the connection between our belief about God and that that must be in place and it must be true before our worship can be acceptable to Him, and next week we'll look at what it is, what it means that God is spirit and what the implications of that are for our worship. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bless your holy name and thank you for your goodness to us. You are majestic. You are transcendent. You are lofty and lifted up. We pray that you would forgive us for entertaining thoughts about you that are not worthy of you. Those ignoble thoughts ought to be the fastest things that we would abandon and turn from. It does us no good to think lowly of you. It does not result in our blessing. It does not result in our good. And it does not result in your glory. And we want to think rightly of you and highly of you. And we know that it is impossible for us to even conceive adequately of you, let alone think too highly of you. So we pray that you would replace in our vision, in our eyes, in the eyes of our heart, the low view of God that we have had with a right and proper view of you in your transcendent majesty. And may we bow in humble adoration and worship toward that God who is worthy of our praise. We thank you, O triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for your goodness and grace to us and the majesty in which you dwell. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.